Greetings, all you worldly, fascinating, and good-looking listeners. Laszlo Montgomery here, coming to you via the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. We're running a little later than usual, sorry about that. I'm a little busy these days, and just got the call to come out to Ningbo mid-August, so busy preparing for that. After looking back on last week's intro to Taoism, I really think I gave short shrift to Zhuangzi and didn't give him his due. So today, we're going to focus in on him for the first part of the podcast, and then we'll continue to examine a little more of the history of Taoism, specifically what is referred to as the classical period of Taoism that pretty much ran from the Han to the Tang. I thought we might look at the various Taoist gods, but I'm pretty sure that's going to have to wait until next week. Not including Lietzu, who frankly doesn't get as much mention, except in some sources. The two main guys of Taoism are Laozi and Zhuangzi. The works attributed to them are called the Laozi and the Zhuangzi, just like their name, which I guess makes them eponymous. The Laozi is better known as the Tao Te Ching, and the Zhuangzi is known as the Zhuangzi, and sometimes referred to as the second book of the Tao. These are the two core books that make up the earliest works of Taoism. For Taoism, this is the holiest of holies. Zhuangzi lived around 369 to 286 BC. This puts him smack dab in the middle of the Warring States period. He was born Zhuangzhou. Zhou was his given name, as the story goes. Although by this time the dynasty is finished, and all these feudal kingdoms, large and small, are all during the Warring States period, trying to bump each other off. Zhuangzi is a contemporary of Mengzi, a.k.a. Mengxius, the best known of the disciples of Confucius. Confucius himself has already been gone for a century by the time Zhuangzi comes along. So you can see, although Taoism got the initial head start, it wasn't by much. And what happens is these two religions sort of grow up and evolve in China side by side. In both religions, I can't stress how much their impact was on Chinese history and culture in many ways, large and small. Zhuangzi came from Anhui province, from the town of Mengcheng. Back then, this was the warring state of Song, which was partly in Henan and Anhui. We know about Zhuangzi the same way we know about Laozi and a cast of thousands. We know about him and his background from... Of course, who else but Sima Qian and his Shi Ji, or Records of the Grand Historian. Thank goodness for Sima Qian. Hey, the man gets me my best material. Sima Qian said that Zhuangzi worked in a so-called lacquer garden, but there's no explanation as to what exactly was a lacquer garden. He completely rejected a life in government, despite his renown as a man of letters. The great work that Zhuangzi is credited with writing, or at least partially writing, has a total of 33 chapters broken down into three parts. It's the first part, the first seven chapters, that are specifically credited to Master Zhuang. These are known as the inner chapters, the Pian. The next 15 chapters are known as the outer chapters. The balance 11 are known as the mixed chapters. It's said Zhuangzi himself wrote the inner chapters, and his disciples wrote the outer chapters, and the mixed chapters were written by various others. Scholars generally agree the inner chapters, the first seven, were written by a single person. 
Whether or not it was Johnson's own brushstrokes that wrote the original is still open for debate. Like just about everything from these ancient days, who knows? 1,000 years from now, historians will have no need to speculate what was going on in the 21st century. We are a well-documented world. But prior to the age of electronics and the ability to store and sort data electronically, and especially pre-Gutenberg, we have writing on basically organic substrates that are fragile and decay with age. So again, Lao Tzu, Zhuang Tzu, we're taking Sima Qian's word for it, that they were who they were. The Shi Qi, but last I checked, didn't come with a bibliography, unfortunately. So we don't know if Zhuang Tzu wrote the first seven chapters or even one sentence of the work that bears his name any more than we know if the Tao Te Ching was written by Lao Tzu. You don't have to read the Zhuang Tzu in any particular order. It's a mishmash of wisdom, and you could pick it up and read random passages of stories and sayings, and you'll be fine. The various chapters more or less fall into one of three categories. The first involves stories where Zhuang Zhe spars verbally with his sidekick, someone named Hui Shi, a noted sophist of his day. You have these Abbott and Costello debates between Hui Shi and Zhuang Zhe, where Zhuang Zhe turns logic on its head. Or the stories have to do with his contempt and disdain for governments of all kind, or they often concern themselves with death as part of the universal process. This work, from a Chinese translation point of view, is not an easy one indeed. It's filled with all kinds of fanciful words and has all kinds of fun with Chinese characters, which are the stuff of double entendres and playful meanings and sometimes impossible to translate. Like almost anything, it's really not the same when you're reading it in translation. So many subtleties in the language are impossible to put into words. Um, I've read it. I've read it in translation. It, it wasn't written in convenient vernacular Chinese. Not that it would be any easier for me either. Uh, it's written in this whole classical Chinese script, the Wen Yan Wen. Yours truly can read most of the characters, but overall it's all Greek to me, so I can only make sense of it if I read it in English. And when I say make sense of it, I mean that term loosely. I mean, what can I say? I'm a history lover, and the philosophy and the lives of the great philosophers has interested me. It didn't reach the same level of passion as the historical aspects. To me, it's all about, in general, what did these philosophers do that influence history or the culture of a civilization. I can't really boast that I was one to read the fine print, which explains why I went into business and not academia, I guess. Uh, let's look at some of the passages of the Zhuangzi. I'll read two or three, and if you've never read it before, eh, you'll get it. I guess the most famous passage is in the outer chapters, chapter 14 to be exact. This concerns a dream that Zhuangzi had. This is like his signature passage from the Zhuangzi that you'll read most often. It went like this. Formerly, I, Zhuang Zhou, remember his first name was Zhou, dreamt that I was a butterfly. A butterfly flying about, feeling that it was enjoying itself. I did not know that it was Zhou. Suddenly I awoke and was myself again, the veritable Zhou. I did not know whether it had formerly been Zhou dreaming that he was a butterfly, or it was now a butterfly dreaming that it was Zhou. But between Zhou and a butterfly, there must be a difference. This is a case of what is called the transformation of things. 
This sort of gives you a little taste of Zhuangzi. His writing is sometimes irreverent, but almost always skeptical, believing nothing, questioning every kind of accepted belief about life, death, good and bad. It's filled with fables and stories that stimulate your mind to rethink some things and laugh at some of the reasoning behind accepted beliefs. It attempts to answer questions that are both philosophical and intellectual. Like the Tao Te Ching, the Zhuangzi, the second book of the Tao, whatever, it's freely available from several websites, both with the Chinese characters and without. Some websites also have commentary. This last of the three great original sacred texts of Taoism, like the Tao Te Ching, has a lesson or three contained inside for almost anyone. Here's a couple passages from the Zhuangzi that gives you an idea how he keeps pounding home the message. Don't be so sure what you know is right. Consider Cripple Shu. His chin is down by his navel. His shoulders stick up above his head. The bones at the base of his neck point to the sky. The five pipes of his spine are on top. His two thighs form ribs. Yet, by sewing and washing, he is able to fill his mouth. By shaking the fortune-telling sticks, he earns enough to feed ten. When the authorities draft soldiers, a cripple can walk among them confidently, flapping his sleeves. When they are conscripting work gangs, cripples are excused because of their infirmity. When the authorities give relief grain to the ailing, a cripple gets three measures along with bundles of firewood. Thus, one whose form is crippled can nurture his body and live out the years heaven grants him. Think what he can do if his virtue was crippled too. Now, this especially has poignancy when you look at it in the context of the times. In most modernized countries where there's some semblance of democracy, last time I checked, no one had to be worried that they'd be picked off the street or out of their homes to go build a great wall somewhere or dig ditches or build dikes or work on some egomaniac's tomb or go fight a war someplace unpleasant. But in those days, that was a real concern among the populace. That was, that was an everyday thing to stress out over. That is, unless you were you know, part of the cream of society or an elite, but you know they're elites because there aren't so many of them. Everyone else, if you were male, that is, had to be wary that one day you could be irrigating a field and the next day you're on your way to the frontier to go face off against these fierce, brutal killing machines from Central Asia. So that little passage says what it says in this context. Another one goes like this. Root of heaven roamed on the south side of Mount Vast. When he came to the banks of Clear Stream, he met Nameless Man and asked him, Please tell me how to manage the world. Go away, you dunce, Nameless Man said. Such questions are no fun. I was just about to join the creator of things. And if I get bored with that... A climb on the bird merges with the sky and soar beyond the six directions. I'll visit nothing whatever town and stay in boundless country. Why do you bring up managing the world to disturb my thoughts? Still, Root of Heaven repeated his question, and Nameless Man responded, Let your mind wander among the insipid. Blend your energies with the featureless. Spontaneously accord with things, and you will have no room for selfishness. Then the world will be in order. All right, one more, and then we'll move on. When Zhuangzi was about to die, 
his disciples wanted to bury him in a well-appointed tomb. Chuanzi said, I have the sky and the earth for inner and outer coffins, the sun and the moon for jade discs, the stars for pearls, and the ten thousand things for farewell gifts. Isn't the paraphernalia for my burial adequate without adding anything? Oh, but we are afraid the crows and the kites will eat you, master, a disciple said. Above ground, I will be eaten by crows and kites. Below ground, by ants. You are robbing from the one to give to the other. Why play favorites? How can you not love it? This guy was writing these words 2,300 years ago. And then last week, you'll recall, Taoism sort of percolates for the next few hundred years and survives the very oppressive years of the Qing dynasty. And then, before you know it, here comes the Han, and along comes Zhang Daoling, who sets up the Tian Shi Dao, the way of the celestial master. And from here on out, there's no stopping Taoism, at least for the time being. A whole number of sects will proliferate, all having the name the way of da 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 you know, whatever. Way of this, the way of that. Way means dao, so it was always something or other dao. Around this time, the feng shirs proliferated, and you have these Taoist practitioners of all kinds of alchemy, astrology, divination, feng shui, necromancy, and all the different manners of magic. These were the guys, I don't know if you remember when uh, Qin Shi Huang sent these guys out on a mission, impossible ones, to go retrieve this elixir of life, and they never returned, and this led to the whole burning of the books and burying the scholar incidents. Those were feng shirs. No real way to translate that. That's what you call these masters of these Taoist black arts. If you need to exercise a ghost, you call your feng shi. These guys are still around today, peddling their services as feng shui masters and whatnot and practitioners of the ancient arts. These feng shi, they really had it good under Han Wu Di. It was like bringing a lobbyist into Washington, D.C. They really thrived, and the great Han Wu Di patronized them like crazy and was a generous sponsor to promote the study and compilation of Taoist teachings. A lot of the practices of some of the Fang Shirs were absorbed into some of these different Taoist sects. So it's during the Han, the Western Han, 206 BC to 8 AD, that these Fang Shir, these, I guess you could call them alchemists, who they, they commingled all folk rituals and medicine and local traditions with the Taoist works of Laozi, Zhuangzi, and Lietzi. So Taoism by this time has taken on a shape that is now much more approachable to the people. By the end of the Han Dynasty, it's been juiced up with all kinds of traditions, beliefs, and gods of every kind imaginable. And then, as I said, Zhang Daoling comes around in 142 AD during the period of the Eastern Han, and now we see Taoism as a full-fledged religion competing with the best of them. And during the Eastern Han, Laozi is given divine status for the first time by the emperor, so... Imagine the possibilities. During the Eastern Han, 68 AD, during the reign of Han Guangwu, Buddhism starts to make inroads into China. The first temple, the White Horse Temple, the Bai Ma Si, is built in Luoyang. And here at Bai Ma Si is considered the, the cradle of Buddhism in China. Taoism keeps on evolving and spreads throughout China. The next milestone in the history of Taoism in China concerned the Yellow Turbans. 
Perhaps you remember them from the Han Dynasty Part 3 podcast, CHP number 20. We mentioned these guys and the Yellow Turban Rebellion, the Huangjin Zhiluan. This, perhaps more than anything, sort of provided the tipping point for the fortunes of the Eastern Han. This rebellion lasted two decades, from 184 to 205. These were the, the three Zhang brothers who started the whole thing. They were all Taoist healers and itinerant practitioners of the particular arts and traditions that by now the Lao Bai Xing have become enamored with. They were the ones who launched this rebellion. They were in deep with the Taiping Dao, the way of the supreme peace. In this Yellow Turban Rebellion, we see Taoist forces as something to be reckoned with. And this won't be the last time you'll see mobs of fanatical and devoted followers wallowing in their misery out in the countryside who embrace a charismatic leader and bring all manners of bad karma to the rulers. Confucianism's great triumph came when the thought was embraced fully by the Han rulers. But now we see as the Han falls to the wayside, Confucianism has a sort of retrenchment, and we'll see Taoism come to the fore in these unsettled times in between the Han and the Sui. The next big milestone in the history of Taoism involves Wang Bi and Neo-Taoism. This period was 3rd to 6th century AD, a period of disunity in China, where you had the three kingdoms, the eastern and western Jin, and then the southern and northern dynasties. Wang Bi lived a short life, 226 to 249. This was right at the start of the Three Kingdoms period. Neo-Daoism's big thing was to reconcile Confucianism and Daoism. That's all. Wang Bi's contribution to Daoism, particularly to Neo-Daoism, is great. It was his commentary, his interpretation of the Tao Te Ching, that became the industry standard all the way up to the discovery of the Ma Wang Dui texts in 1973. For 17 centuries, Wang Bi's work on the Tao Te Ching and also the Yi Jing, which we'll discuss another day, was the most accepted and popular version. What were the Ma Wang Dui texts? Now, there's a story that goes with this. Let me first just say the first time I went to see the Ma Wang Dui texts was in 1990, maybe 91, not sure. Back in those days, I was living in Hong Kong and working for a factory that did a lot of business with one of the state-owned import-export corporations in, in Changsha in Hunan. So I was constantly back and forth between Hong Kong and Changsha, always staying at the Hua Tian Hotel, which was the only game in town back in the early 90s. So our hosts took us to the Hunan Provincial Museum on one of these trips and they proudly showed us the riches found at the Ma Wang Dui excavation. They proudly showed us the artifacts on display discovered locally back in 1973. And I didn't know then what I know now, so the significance was lost on me at the time. There were three tombs excavated, a husband, wife, and they believe a son. They were from the Western Han during the time of Han Wen Di. It was an amazing find. And, they, and only 38 years ago they found it. The wife, Lady Dai, she was so well-preserved in her tomb that they were, in modern times, still able to do an autopsy on her. In one of the three tombs, they discovered a treasure of texts, including complete copies of the Yi Jing and Dao De Jing, the earliest copies ever, as well as a copy of the Zhan Guo Ci, or Strategies of the Warring States. Much more was found in addition to this. 
Everything was printed on silk, and the entirety of the discovery of these, what came to be known as the Mawangdui Boshu, the Mawangdui silk texts, they gave new insight after so many years into Chinese science and math, military strategy, map making, as well as all six of the classic arts of ritual, music, archery, horsemanship, arithmetic, and writing. So once the Mawangdui texts were found, it sort of stole some of the limelight from Wang Bi. But you see, during this time, Taoism is continuing to evolve as a religion, as a philosophy, and now a lot of these fangshirs are thick with politicians and those associated with the seat of power. We see the rise of new sects that become very big and powerful. This is the classical period of Taoism, basically starting with Zhang Daoling and culminating in the Tang Dynasty. This is the period, this classical Taoist period, where all the texts, the practices, and rituals are all developed. As I said, early in the Eastern Han, Eastern Han Dynasty, Buddhism came to China during this classical period, and these two sometimes bitter rivals, Taoism and Buddhism, they began to take from each other and mold some of the aspects of the other's beliefs into their own religion. So amidst the competition, there's also a high degree of engagement and working together. But still, the market for adherence in China was a limitless one, and Buddhists competed neck and neck with the Taoists. The Taoists would comb through the cities, towns, and countryside, perhaps tout the effectiveness of their spells, their potions that gave long life or immortality, and abilities to perform better exorcisms and control the nature gods. In the Buddhists, they would, you know, scoff at this and say, you know, their principles were much loftier and their way was a safer route to salvation. And of course, the Buddhist concepts of rebirth was always an excellent selling point. In the final analysis, although both are still very firmly entrenched in society, if the number of adherents and temples is any indication, you might be able to conclude uh, Buddhism won the Olympics of religions in China. Now, Taoism caught many a break since the time of uh, the Western Han, but it was during the Tang Dynasty that they really hit the big time and became the official state religion of China. The founder of the Tang, Li Yuan, to sort of puff himself up and add to his legitimacy, he claimed he was a descendant of Lao Tzu. So we'll see, Taoists begin to wend their way through the whole Tang imperial court, and they'll become part of the system. It was during the Xuanzong Emperor where the Tang reached its peak and when Taoism then became the official state religion of China. The great Xuanzong Emperor, he of the Yangui Fei fame, he was a very big-time Taoist. He had many of the various Taoist sects and movements all combined into a single Taoist umbrella. This was in the 8th century. If you remember from an earlier podcast, the Empress Wu Zetian she was the only exception to the Tang ruler. She was a devout Buddhist and totally embraced Buddhism over Taoism. She was devout, I guess, except for all the people she had killed. But other than that half century that she had power in varying degrees, the Taoists held sway in the Tang imperial court. After the Tang dynasty, I guess you could say the Taoists never again rose to such power. And throughout the subsequent dynasties, the Song, Yuan, Ming, Qing, and into the present day, 
Taoism has survived, and today it's one of the five officially recognized religions in China. And there are people the world over who practice Taoism to one degree or another. It was around 400 AD or thereabouts that the first Tao Zang was compiled. The Tao Zang, this was a collection, an official collection of everything there was that was ever written or had to do with Taoism. The first time they did this, there were about 1,200 scrolls of wisdom, including, of course, the Laozi, Zhuangzi, Lieci. The second time they compiled a new official Daozang was during the Tang Dynasty in 748. This, again, was during the reign of Daoism's greatest champion, the Xuanzong Emperor. Then in 1016, during the Song Dynasty, the third Daozang came out, which improved upon the second and culled it of many texts that were taken out that had been put in during the Tang. And then in 1444, during the Ming Dynasty, we have the last and final version, and there's about 5,000 scrolls that make up this final version of Taoism's most sacred and important texts. I think we're going to stop a little earlier than usual. I guess by now you've all noticed I like to keep these episodes at about 30 minutes. I still want to take a look at all the main Taoist gods, the Three Purities, the Jade Emperor, Queen Mother of the West, the Four Heavenly Emperors, you name it. We'll explore them all. I promise we'll look at Lü Dongbin and all of the Eight Immortals and sort out which one is which. We'll also look at uh, other sacred stuff like the Five Great Mountains of Taoism, the Wu Yue. So that's all for next week, and we'll wind up this little overview of Taoism. And we'll do the same thing later on for Confucianism and Buddhism in China. I sure am getting a lot of mail asking me to start the dang cultural revolution already. That seems to be quite the uh, popular topic. I already did the Great Leap Forward, and if you remember way, way back in the beginning, I did an episode on the so-called godfather of the cultural revolution, Mao's favorite henchman, Kang Sheng. I think before we explore the cultural revolution, we need to first look at the 50s and some of the milestones in the People's Republic of China's first decade. So that's coming up soon. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed that, as the great one, Professor Bob might say. The new China History Podcast website that I promised you a long time ago, it's almost ready for its unveiling. Hang in there just a little bit longer. Look for me on Twitter, although honestly, I'm more of a follower than a tweeter. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again wishing you all the finest of farewells and my eternal thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.